0: getting feedback, Mark. I don't know. So we've been going through uh, the book of Psalms. And for those of you who've not been with us throughout the entirety of it, um, we, have, we started off with Psalm chapter 1 and looked at the foundation of the Psalms and got an idea that there are two different people being represented. We have those who, who trust God, who follow God, who do His will, and those who don't. And obviously, I think all of us want to be the one who does. Well, what does that take? The next week, we kind of dug into uh, the law or the Word of God. And Psalm 119 is just uh, an entire psalm, a massive, long psalm that focuses on God's Word and what he has given to us and how we're supposed to know Him, and how we're supposed to rely on Him. And then we began getting into different types of psalms. Um, And I I referred to that kind of like the way that we discuss food. There's there's different genres, and that's not to say that some are better than others, or some are more important than others, or anything like that. But like food, you know that there's Chinese food, and there's uh, American food, there's comfort food, there's Mexican food. Then you can get real nitpicky and say, well, there's Mexican food, but then there's, authentic Mexican food. There's, there's Taco Bell, and then there's real Mexican food. No offense to Taco Bell, but, I mean, they're different. And then you, you can nitpick and, and dig into that, well, there's, there's authentic Mexican food, like from Mexico, or there's, like, southern Mexican or northern Mexican. I mean, there's all kinds of... And, and we kind of dug in. The, the Psalms have that type of genres where we can categorize them. We can, we can nitpick about, okay, this one's about this, and this one's about that. And, and during that, we kind of looked at three... We said that there are hymns of praise in which their focus, their, their purpose is just to praise God, to worship Him. And then there are laments in which we say, you know, there are challenges, there are difficulties. And yet even in those, we take that to the Lord and we turn it over to Him. And sometimes that's, that's difficult, that's hard, because we want to focus on the hard things and, and the difficult things. But as we saw from the Psalms, when we take those and just turn it over to God... It, it redirects our focus, it redirects our attention back to Him, which is where it ought to be. And, and the result is that we praise Him. And then we also looked at thanksgiving. And, you know, that's the one that personally I find the most challenging. It's, it's really easy to come across something difficult and be like, oh, I can't handle this, so God, I trust you. But with thanksgiving, it's already been taken care of. And But now I'm supposed to turn back and praise Him and worship Him and thank Him. For what he's done. And those are, those are really the three genres that I wanted to focus on. Now we're, we're moving into kind of a new set as we dig into the Psalms. I'm, I'm referring to these as the themes of the Psalms. Now, the, the genres are kind of the way that they're set up and, and their focus and what they're doing. The themes are certain ideas that come out of the Psalms. Now, one of the things that I've not referred to yet is the didactic nature of Psalms. Now, I know that's a big fancy word, I like using those occasionally because it makes me sound smart, but it's really a very simple word. What, does anybody know what didactic means? It means teaching. The Psalms exist to teach us something. It's, it's not just, although they're useful for praising God, they are also have a great purpose of teaching us things. And so these, these next series, that, as we're going into this continuing study of Psalms, we're going to be looking at themes of the Psalms, and what are they trying to teach us? What are we, what are we learning from it? And the very first one, um, I, I like to think of as in questions. I like to think, as I'm, as I'm studying and trying to learn, I, I'm always asking questions. In fact, I was encouraged uh, recently by a very, very wise individual. He said, you know, when you approach Scripture, you ought to be starting off just asking questions. And write them down. Write them down. As you, as you read through, write down questions. Doesn't matter what it is, but ask questions of the text. And, and then go back and dig into the text, dig into the Scripture, and what, does, what are the answers to those questions? Well, the very first question that I came up with on this is, why do we praise? Why do we start off the service by singing songs? Why do, why do we do that? It's an open question. Go ahead. Why? why? Okay, to praise the Lord. That's one of the big reasons. Thank you, Dad. That's one of the big reasons that pops to my mind of, of why we do certain things. That's just the way we've always done it. And, and there's nothing wrong with tradition, don't get me wrong, but if that's the only reason, I would say you probably ought to go back and try and figure out, okay, why? What, what, what is the basis? What is the reasoning? Well, there's another reason that comes to my mind as, as to why we sing songs, maybe not necessarily at the beginning of service, but why corporately we gather together and we sing praises and sing songs. Anybody have another idea? You're, you're reading ahead on... Because uh, uh, the Bible tells us to. That's a good reason. That's a, that's a great reason. Because we're commanded to. And so we're going to start off in Psalm 33, and we're going to find out that we are commanded to praise. We are commanded to worship. So my, my ultimate question this week is, why do we praise? We're going to dig into it, and we're going to find out that the Psalms teach us a reason to praise. And it's, it's not just because we're commanded to, although that's, that in and of itself would be a sufficient reason. If the Bible says to, I ought to do it. In and of itself, that's enough. But there are, there are several parents in here. Do you ever have kids asking why? 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 I had a, I had a conversation with a, a younger father this week, and it was, it was a good conversation, and, and we were discussing that very question of, okay... As a dad, how do I respond to that question of why? Because I don't want to just be because I said so. It's like, well, technically, if you tell your kids to do something, they ought to do it. I mean, that's, the Bible tells us that children are to be obedient to their parents, right? So because I said so, that's enough reason. But that's not really a, a satisfactory reason. It, it, it makes it kind of difficult and hard to always be saying, because I said so, because I said so, because I said so. I actually like that question, I like it when my kids ask why, the correct way, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that, that they ought to question everything and be constant, but when they ask why, they're asking to be able to understand, to be able to learn, and my goal as a parent is to teach them, and to train them, and not just say, don't touch that. Well, why? Well, because it's a hot stove, and it's going to burn you, and you will be harmed, and, and my role as a father is to prevent you from being harmed. But I can't watch constantly and make sure you're not touching the hot stove, so I teach you it's hot and it will hurt you, therefore don't. Well, then they have to make a choice based on that. But the, the point is, they ask why, and I train them, and I teach them, and I develop them. Well, this psalm, Psalm 33, that I'm about to read to us, I think does that. And if we approach it and we say, okay, it says, sing for joy in the Lord. I'm commanded to praise Him. But Why? Well, first of all, because he tells me to, I should. But then, well, let's let's just read Psalm 33 together. Sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones; praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre; sing praises to him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song; play skillfully with a shout of joy, for the word of the Lord is upright. And all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. But the word of the Lord, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of His heart from generation to generation. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom He has chosen for His own inheritance. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From His dwelling place He looks out. On all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all, he who understands all their works. The king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness, to deliver their souls from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart rejoices in Him, because we trust in His holy name. Let Thy lovingkindness, O Lord, be upon us, according as we have hoped in Thee. Sometimes I like to try and catch the 30,000-foot view. This psalm starts off with a command... And it ends with a confession. And everything else in the middle is about God. It's about who he is. It's about what he's done. It's about God. So, why is he worthy of praise? Why do we praise him? Well, as we dig into this, I want you to look for a cause and effect a do this because of that. Um, the very first word starts off with a command, like I said. It says, uh, in, in English, it says, sing for joy in the Lord. This is a, a command, but it's an intensive idea. So it's not just this, this thought of, well, sing out, you know, when we, when we start singing, how many of you ever will sing and just kind of mumble the words? Like, mm-hmm, sing praise to the Lord. But that's not the idea that's here. This is an intensive, it's like burst forth with joy. Sing out loud to our Lord. That's that's the idea that's being conveyed here. And so it's, uh, it's, it's not mumbling, it's sing it out loud. Well, who is commanded to do that? See, that's that's one of those important things. When you start digging into Scripture, there, there are a lot of commands, and some apply to some people and some apply to others. Well, who does this apply to? The righteous ones. What... what but there's none righteous, no, not one, right? I mean, that's what Romans 3 says. But then, yeah, you keep going in Romans, and Romans 5 actually says that through Christ, many will be made righteous. So, just imagine for a moment, Old Testament setting, they're, they're singing this out, and you, you think to yourself, well, who's righteous? What is righteous? Well, we have several examples. Noah was called righteous. And that's why God came to him and, and saved him. He was righteous. And David is called a righteous man, a man after God's own heart. I think the best example is Abraham. Now, the New Testament explains it a little bit more, but the Old Testament even tells us Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. So, who is supposed to do this? I think from the get go, it's those who trust Christ, those who believe God. Sometimes that's challenging. Sometimes that's difficult. But the one who believes God is the one that has been made righteous through the work of Christ. So, if you are a follower of Christ, if you have accepted him, you're commanded to burst forth with praise for God. If you're not a follower of Christ, if you're like, well, you know, I, I don't know. I, yeah, it all sounds good, but I don't. Well, I want you to go ahead and listen anyway. As we go through, we're going to find some reasons why. And if those reasons are true, then even those who are not followers of Christ ought to begin to praise the Lord. Obviously, the first way to praise God is to trust Him, to rely on Him, to become one of these righteous ones, not by my own righteousness, not by my own doings, but through the righteousness that is offered freely through Christ. So then, as we dig into this, we find... That the righteous ones, the followers of Christ, the followers of God, are commanded to burst forth with praise, with worship. That's the first one. But then verse two says, "Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre." Now, give thanks. It's a very fairly broad word. Um, it does mean to give thanks, but it also can be used to mean to confess. It means to bemoan, but it also can mean to worship. And so, you know, I, I, I enjoy words sometimes, but you get into one like that, and it's like, which one is it? That seems contradictory, to, to bemoan, but also to worship, to confess, but also to give thanks. Well, you start getting into it, and what do all of those have in common? They're all calling out to God, right? They're all putting whatever it is, whatever's on your heart, whatever's on your mind, it's laying it before God. It's going to Him. And, and yes, it is giving thanks. That's kind of the primary. But it's going to Him and calling on Him and laying it out before God. Now, this verse and the next one give us two instruments that we use to do that. It says, give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Um, and then sing praises to Him with a harp of ten strings. How many, how many people play instruments here? Okay, why aren't you up here joining us on the... No, I'm, I'm just kidding. These, these are two types of instruments. Um, one of them is a harp, just kind of like your basic stringed instrument that you pluck and it, it makes noise. You are able to carry that around very easily. And so uh, the psalm is saying, hey, use, use a harp, use a basic lyre, um, it, musical instrument, and use it to give thanks. Use it to praise God. Use it to, to call out to Him in different ways. The next one, the the uh, harp of ten strings, is it's a bold-based instrument, so kind of like a guitar. It, it has the body of an instrument, and it had ten strings. What specific instruments these are, I'm not sure, um, because instruments change over time, and different cultures have different types of instruments. The point that he's making is use these common, regular instruments that you can carry around all the time, that you can have in all kinds of different settings, um, you, you'll recall, a lot of the psalms were written by David. David was out in the field taking care of sheep, and he had a, a harp. And he was able to sing and praise God with the harp. Same, same idea is going on here. Use those instruments to praise God. The, the specifics of what those instruments are is not really the point. Um, but the idea is use music to accompany this praise and this thanksgiving Uh, One of them is, uh, give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. The other is, sing praises to him with a harp of ten strings. In all of those, use those instruments to praise God. Now, who is supposed to be doing that? The righteous ones. Going back to verse 1, it says that praise is becoming to the upright. That word becoming is, it's beautiful. Now, We've got some instruments, and I, I asked, how many of you play instruments? And many of you did not raise your hand. I don't know if you don't want to admit to it, or you don't. How many of you would say to yourself, you know what, I, I, I'm not very good at singing. I don't, I don't sing very well. It's not a beautiful sound. It's not that, you don't have to raise your hand on this one. But oh, <laughs> Thank you, Jim. I appreciate it. it. A lot of people think to themselves, you know what, I, I, I'm not good at singing, so I'm, I'm just going to, I'm not going to. Does this passage give an exemption for not being able to sing well? Go go ahead and read it again. It it says, sing for for joy in the Lord. Burst forth with praise to him, you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Sing praise to him with a harp of ten strings. I don't see an exemption when someone says, well, I I can't sing very well. I'm not very good at that. Haven't haven't come across it yet. In fact, it's commanded of all who are righteous. But this is this is fascinating to me. The end of verse two, or sorry, the end of verse one says, Praise is becoming to the upright. You dig into that word becoming means beautiful. It means fitting. It means it looks good. So if you want to look good, praise God. Now, I I acknowledge that sounds a little bit flippant. We're not saying the outward beauty, the outward appearance. We're saying that inwardly, our character is, is beautiful, is good, is right when we praise. It is becoming or it is fitting for those who are upright. Well, what, is, what is the idea of upright? Anybody? Walking. Do what? Walking your walk solid and true, upright, correct. To praise God is beautiful for us to do when we're walking with him, when we are made righteous, when we are living for him. That's a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. And even if we look at it and say, you know what, I'm not very good at it. That's not an excuse. We're to praise him anyway. Verse 3 says, Sing to him a new song. Now, I dug into that one a little bit it doesn't mean that you have to go write your own music. You, you don't have to be a, a composer and write things. The idea is be creative in the way that you worship him. You don't have to get into rote where you sing in the same thing over and over and over all the time. It's be creative and sing to him a new song. Now here it does get into that idea of play skillfully. Okay? So we, we should play skillfully. We should do it well. But it's... It's not that you have to be an expert musician to be able to worship God. Yes, ma'am? Don't forget your capo. Don't forget your capo. <laughs> I wasn't going to point it out, but I don't know if anybody noticed, but we, we had a little bit of a capo error during uh, worship this morning. As we, were, as we were singing, the guitarists didn't exactly do their capos right. But that's okay. The idea of play skillfully, the, the idea here is that we are to do it not sloppily. Not without care, but to do it with, with paying attention. Now, I understand there are different kinds of music. And, and you can have your opinions on, well, this is good music and that is not good music. I, I have my opinions. We'll deal with those some other time. But it's, it's not dealing with those genres of music or those styles of music. What it's saying is, as you worship, as you are creative in worship, do that well. Do it not in a sloppy way, not in a, a haphazard way, but do it in a way in which you are praising and glorifying and, and bringing that praise to God. It's, it's not simply about skill, or it, it's simply about use the skills that you have. It's not about having perfection in your musical abilities. Okay, so there's, there's several ways that are listed uh, through this. It says, sing for joy, that's that burst forth with praise. Um, to give thanks, that's to call on God or to worship him. Sing praises to him, that's to, to sing out, use music, musically sing. Uh, down here in verse 3, it says, sing to him. The idea there is just in any type of song, any type of musical singing, do it to just sing. But you know, I always have to go back to that starting question of why. Why do we sing at the beginning of our of our? Worship services, beginning of our, our times together. We already established because we're commanded to. And, and right here, these are listed out as commands. They're imperatives. They're what you do. Do it. But, you know, I personally would be kind of um, unsatisfied with that as an answer just because I said so. Just like kids, yes, you can say because daddy said, and that's sufficient, that's enough, but that kind of gets tiring and old. But God doesn't leave it at that. If that were all that he said, yes, we should we should definitely praise him. I'm not please don't think that I'm saying that that's not enough. If God says it, we need to do it. But the psalms, as I said, are didactic. They're they're there to teach us things. They're there to help us learn and to understand. So why do we praise? Why should we praise Him? Why should we do this? Why should we sing? Why should we burst forth with worship? Why should we give thanks? Why should we call on the Lord? Why should we do all of these things? That's what the bulk of this psalm talks about and focuses in on. For the word of the Lord is upright. Because the word of God, the Bible, is upright. We've seen this word already. Uh, Back in verse 1, it is fitting Or beautiful for the upright to praise God. Uh, I think that that that's one of the pretty things about Psalms is that they'll use the same word multiple times to bring it back around and to, to remind us of what's going on. We ought to be upright and righteous, but how do we do that? Well, the word of the Lord is upright and righteous. So, how do we become upright so that it is becoming for us to praise God? Well, his word is upright. His word tells us what is what is structurally correct. Um, I, I, as I was going through this, I thought of building something we 've got several builders in here, right? When you set a a corner post, whether it 's for a fence or for a building, for a structure, for a whole house, what do you have to do to it? You, you sure it up, you, you put it in concrete and then you take out a level, and you make sure that it's it 's plumb and true right you don 't just let it let it sit well. What this is saying, the, the picture that comes to my mind on this, the Word of God is that level. It's upright. It makes sure that it is, it is solid and true, that it's, it's solidly set in concrete, but then that it is set the correct direction. It makes sure that we're level, that we're plumb, that it's, it's not twisted or the wrong way. The Word of God is what helps us to be righteous and helps us to be upright because it is the standard of what is upright. All of his work, verse, verse 4, the second half, all his work is done in faithfulness. This connects to that same idea. It is straight, it is accurate, it is true. And so both the word of God and the works of God show us what is right, what is true, what is the correct way of doing things. Verse 5, the next reason is because he loves righteousness and justice. Now, again, I, I enjoy words... Uh you start digging into what do those words mean. How how would you define what is righteous and what is just righteousness be in the eyes of God and just might be what the world sees as justice, but not necessarily always biblically accurate, I guess. Okay. What is true? Okay. What is fair? What is, fair? What is right? Uh, as, I, as I was digging into these, they have a lot of overlap. Righteousness and justice kind of have this tendency to, to overlap on each other. And you start trying to find a definition of what is righteous and it's what's just. And you dig into what's just and it's what's right. And so it's, it's a little bit challenging to define these two. They're, they're linked, but the idea is what is lawful and what is approved by the authority that exists. Well, who is the ultimate authority? Who gets to set what is right and wrong? What is just and what is unjust? Well, God himself, right? Okay. All of his works align with who he is. And his, his love, his desire, what he, what he focuses on is that which is in alignment with him. That which is right. That which is just. That which is in accordance with his decrees, with his word, with his desires. The earth... As a result, the earth is full of the loving kindness of God. Now, we've, we've dug into that word chesed before, right? One of my favorite Greek, or not Greek, this is Hebrew. One of my favorite Hebrew words, because it sounds really cool when you say it. It's got that little tickle in your throat. Chesed. It's a cool word. But then you start digging into it, and what does it mean? What's it talking about? This idea of loving kindness, this, this abundance of the ruler of the world, the one who sets what is right and wrong, of him reaching down and taking care of someone who is weak and incapable and not able. The, the master caring for the servant in a way that's not required, doesn't make sense. That's what chesed is. And it says that the earth is full of the chesed, of the loving kindness of God. So, just from these couple of verses, why should we praise God? We should praise him Because his word, because his work, because his will or his desire, his love, and because his chesed is without end. I I wrote it out as his word is upright, his work is solid, his will is righteous, and his chesed is without end. If we stopped there and just said, okay, that's enough, is that enough reason to praise God, to worship him, to follow through on this command? Because he gave us his word and it's... It's solid, it's sure, it's true, it's upright. What he does, his actions are solid and sure and true and upright. What he loves is righteousness, is in alignment with what is good and pure. And the love that he just pours out on us so richly. Is that enough reason to praise God? You ought to be nodding your head. Yes, most definitely. So let's just stop there and say, okay, that's why. We could but we're not going to. Let's keep going. Why Why do we praise God? First of all, because we're commanded to. Second of all, these, these things that we've just looked at, his word, his work, his will, and his love is without end. That's, that's enough reason. But we're going to keep going. Verse 6, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all their hosts he gathers the water of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. If you spend any time at all reading the Bible, you're going to find that when God speaks, stuff happens. And it, it happens immediately, and it happens exactly how he commands it. You go back to Genesis, right at the beginning. God says it, it's created. Now, I don't know about you, but I kind of look at that, and that's a Pretty powerful thing. If if someone just by saying something can make it happen, do you think that they might be worthy of praise and worship? That's why Genesis is recorded as it is, so that we understand that he created these things just by the power of his word. But it doesn't it doesn't just leave us there. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Now, what is heavens? Uh, I think Jerry actually made comment on that. When when we say heavens, what do you think of? I know the kids sit up there, but what, what comes to your mind? It's, it's not a trick question. It's nice and easy. Okay, the place where God is, what? Okay, that, that's a good question. Which one? Which one? Because the Bible talks kind of about three different levels of heaven, right? There's the first heaven, that's, that's the air, the atmosphere. That's where birds fly, right? Okay, so we have the atmosphere. That's, that's the heaven. But then we have outer space. The next, next layer is outer space. It's where the stars, the moon, asteroids, all of that stuff is. And then the third heaven is where God dwells, right? Now, I dug into this word because I, obviously I enjoy words. Which one is this talking about? Well, you'll notice that it's a plural, right? The heavens. I think he's talking about all of them. He's talking about all three of those locations just by his word, He made them. But what's the rest of the verse say? By the breath of his mouth, all of their hosts. So, not only did God speak and the heaven was made, all all three layers, but what fills those? Well, we talked about the the first one, the atmosphere, that has all kinds of birds. It also has lots of bugs that fly around in it. I mean, there's, there's a lot in there. Just by the breath of God's mouth, those were made. But then we have the The next layer, we're looking at the uh, outer space where the moon and the stars, the sun, all the asteroids, all the uh, planets, all of that stuff, just by the breath of his mouth. But then in in the third heaven where God dwells, we look at at angels, right? That's the host that fills heaven. If you've been coming on, on Wednesday nights, we've been studying the book of Revelation, and those angels aren't little weaklings, all right, they're, they're pretty impressive. They're, they're, you'd start digging into some of the stuff that they do, and it's, it's pretty awesome. And yet, God created all of those with the breath of his mouth. One of my, one of my favorite verses going through Genesis, you look at the, the creation account, right? Then God said, and this happened, then God said, and that happened. Pretty, pretty cool, pretty awesome. Uh, Genesis 1, verse 16, it's going through and it's talking about the stuff that God made. He made the sun and the moon. And he puts them in place so that they give us the signs and the seasons and the days and the years, all of that. Oh, and he made the stars also. It's one of my favorite phrases. It's like, by, by the way, he made the stars also. Like, like, it's not a big thing. And yet, we begin to study. And there are not just millions, but billions of stars. And you start digging into them. And each one is different and unique. And they're made in special ways. And they do different things. Stars are awesome. Do what? He and he knows each of their names. I I hope that you're getting the idea that God is powerful. That if, if God is able to just speak these things into existence, and, and some of them, things that we look at as so awesome and amazing, the stars, all that, that fills heaven, you know, the, the outer space, oh, he made those as well. That's... Awesome. That's powerful. We ought to praise him for that as well. By the word of the Lord, the heavens remain. By the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays the deeps in storehouses. Have you ever tried to make a pile of water? Anybody ever do that? I, I have because, you know, I like playing with water. If you try and make a pile, it doesn't work very well. I I got thinking just because I'm I'm weird and I like to research odd things. I got thinking about water. And and who knows some of the attributes of water, the the, the things about water? Anybody? What's what's something about water? When it freezes it expands. Okay. Water when it freezes it expands instead of it contracts. That's that's odd. It's different. It's liquid. Okay, it's a liquid. Generally speaking, water is Okay, it's hydrogen and oxygen. I, I went to Khan Academy because it's a nice, easy online resource, and I, I found seven uh, things about water that I thought was interesting. I wanted to read it to you. Real quick, I, I did a large print so that it's not going to take that long. Water mul- molecules are polar with a partial positive charge on the hydrogen and a partial negative charge on the oxygen and a bent overall structure. This is because oxygen is more electronegative, meaning it's better than hydrogen at attracting electrons. I didn't know that. The, the way that it fits together, attracts and, and pushes, and, and that's important because we get into number two. Water is an excellent solvent. Water has a unique ability to dissolve many polar and ionic substances. This is important to all living things because as water travels through the water cycle it takes many valuable nutrients along with it. Water is able to uh, have nutrients in the water as it travels. Water also has a high heat capacity. It takes a lot of energy to raise the temperature of a certain amount of water by a degree. So water helps with regulating temperature in the environment. For example, this property allows the temperature of water in a pond to stay relatively constant from day to night, regardless of the changing atmospheric temperatures. One of the things I've enjoyed about lapine is that it gets really nice and cold in the evenings and then nice and hot during the day. Well, water has a regulating effect. And so just, I'll continue reading this in a moment, but just pause and think about that. We've only seen a couple of things that water does. And this verse talks about how that God pulls it together in a heap and he puts it in a storehouse. God's the one who created water and he commands how it's supposed to function and what it's supposed to do. And that that seems like just a really simple overview of, okay, God manages water. But when we step back and we start studying it and looking at water and how it works and what it does and why it does what it does, we ought to stop and step back and pause and be like, wow, I can't even make a pile of water. And yet God, the God of the universe, not only made all of this, but continues to control all of this about water. Water also has a high heat evaporation. Humans, and other animals that sweat, use water's evaporation to cool off. Water is converted from liquid to steam when the heat of evaporation is reached. Since sweat is mostly water, the evaporation uh, of water absorbs body heat, which is released into the atmosphere. This is a good thing. It helps keep us cool when it's hot. Water has a cohesive and adhesive properties. Water molecules have strong cohesion force due to the ability to form nitrogen bonds with one another. Cohesion force is responsible for surface tension and the tendencies of of a liquid surface to resist rupture when placed under tension or stress. Water also has adhesive properties that allow it to stick to substances other than itself. You ever, like, wash dishes? There's a reason that we use lots of water to do that. It connects with certain substances and is able to function well. These cohesive and adhesive properties are essential for fluid transport in many forms of life. For example, they allow nutrients to be transported to the top of a tree against the forces of gravity. It's also the way that our blood works. It's, It's just one of the factors about what water does and how it works. Water is also less dense as a solid than as a liquid. That was mentioned that when water freezes, uh, it expands instead of contracts. This means that ice is less dense than other liquid water, which is why it floats. I thought this one was really cool. This property is, is important as it keeps ponds, lakes, and oceans from freezing solid and allows life to continue to thrive under the icy surface. Th- those are just a few things, and maybe, maybe I bored you with the, the scientific aspect of water. But if you slow down and you think about just a simple thing like water, something that we're so used to, we see it all the time. It rained yesterday. Most of you have probably had a glass of water this morning. Did you pause and think about the, f- the, the properties of that water, the factors of it? Or more importantly, the one who made it? the one who controls it, the one who's able to pile it up and to lay it up in the deeps and storehouses to take care of all of that? When, when we just think of one minor little thing, like water, that ought to cause us to slow down and worship God, to praise Him because of His power, because of His might, because of His ability. In fact, verse 8 says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. To fear and to stand in awe. Again, these words are often used to define each other. When you fear, it means that you stand in awe of something. When you are in awe, it means you fear something. That's not very helpful from a dictionary, but the idea that, that is presented in it and that I think makes the most sense is you get out of the way. You see, you see a mighty tornado coming across. I was talking about tornadoes a lot this week. You don't stand in the way of that you get out of its way, right? I mean, that makes sense. You say, you know what? I can't control it. I'm not in charge of it. I don't dictate where it goes. I get out of its way and I let it do its thing. And I recognize how powerful it is, how awesome it is. And so I stand in awe of it. The, the best example that I've found, um, particularly at, at camp teaching kids about this idea, the fear of the Lord, as you guys recall, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? That's what Proverbs says. Well, defining fear can be challenging, but I like the example of fire. How many of you have ever used a fire? I'm I'm guessing most of you, if you drove here, you used an internal combustion engine, right? Well, that's fire. We, We appreciate fire. It's very, very useful, very, very valuable. Yesterday, I had the opportunity to go over to the Davis fire area, Uh, Davis Lake, and there was a a fire that in one day, the day it started was a thousand acres, basically. By the time it was done, three days later, it was 60,000 acres. That's powerful. That's scary. See, we enjoy fire. We use fire. It's very useful. It's very important. But we also need to respect it because it can get out of hand and it can just do all kinds of things. Well, that's the idea of fear. It's, it's good, it's important, it's useful. We ought to love God. We ought to respect God. We ought to desire to be near him, but not in a flippant way, not in a, oh, well, you know, he's just the man upstairs. He's you know, nothing. No, but in a, in a awe, in a reverence, like a tornado or like a, a wildfire in which you get out of the way. You don't want to stand in the way of that. You want to honor it. You want to respect it. You want to treat it carefully because it is way more powerful than you are. That's, that's the idea that's being presented here. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Now we've, we've just seen a few of the things of his power, his ability, his might. He controls nature without any problem because his voice, the word of his mouth, is what created it all in the first place. We ought to stand in awe of that. We ought to fear that because of his power, his ability In verse 9 it says, For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Just the decree of God is enough to control everything. There's nothing that we can do to change it. Just like there's no way that you can stand in front of a tornado and make it stop, there's no way that you can stand in front of a fire and expect it not to just burn right over everything. That's why we need to treat those things with with reverential awe, with fear. With fear. God's the same way. He is that powerful. In fact, he is far more powerful than either of those examples might be. He commanded and it stood fast. But then we get into another aspect of what his power is. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. We look at the world around us and sometimes we find that that nations try and do certain things, right? And we don't always agree with the politics of how those are happening. But here we, we learn that God is in control, even of the nations, even of the things that they might do. Um, counsel means the advice, the plan, the purpose, or the expectation. And so the Lord nullifies the plans of nations. But the plans of God stand forever. That's 10 and 11. So what the world might plan to do, God overrides it, but nothing overrides God's plan. The, the plans, uh, the second part, the, he frustrates the plans of the peoples, but the plans of his heart continue from generation to generation. So what nations, even the mighty world powers that we look at, whether it's um, the United States or Russia Going back in history, whether it's Germany or England, going even further back, Babylon or Assyria or Persia or any of those, God is able to nullify their plans, their expectations, what they're going to do. He can override their thoughts and their ideas and their intentions, but his plans, they last forever. There's nothing that can overcome those things, which is why verse 12 says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. If a country says, you know what, I want my ways to be God's ways, then they will be blessed. This is, this is the blessed that is happy. They will be blessed, they will be happy, because they're aligning themselves with God. But a nation that sets themselves against God is going to be overruled. Now, I'm, I'm not going to get into politics and whether you think that our country is doing the right thing or not, and, and that's beside the point. The fact of the matter is... The nation that does what God wants them to do stands, and the ones that don't, God overrides them. He's in control. He's the one that makes those decisions. And that's, that's really where the idea, the word, um, it's, it's used a lot and it's thrown around a lot, but the idea of the sovereignty of God, it's his rule, it's his control, it's his ability to direct those things. He's the one who's in charge, not the countries, no matter how powerful a country may think it is. Therefore, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. Verse 13, the Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From his dwelling place, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all, he who understands all their works. God sees all, he knows all, he understands all. God is way smarter, way more educated than we may ever be. Like a potter, he fashions the hearts of all. When, the greatness of his wis- when we understand the greatness of his wisdom, we ought to praise him. So thus far, we've seen his work, his word, his will, what he does, his love for us, his hesed, the power of his words, the ability, the might that he has his control over all of the nations, all of these are reasons that we ought to praise him. Jumping down to verse 16, the king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. I mentioned the idea of fire and being in fear of it. I think that this creates an even more that picture of, There's no strength, there's no might, there's no power that can stand against God. You get the biggest army that ever was, does nothing. Now, now, obviously at that time they relied on horses as cavalry. You can think the, the best tank ever made. There's no might, there's no power, there's no ability that stands in God's way. I think we ought to fear that. I think we ought to stand in awe of that. I think we ought to be praising him. Because of those things this this ends up painting a pretty scary picture, and that that's good that's right. we ought to be afraid and stand in terror of who God is because he is that powerful he is that awesome he is that amazing. but then we get to verse eighteen behold now i I was telling Tiff about you know what I I, I make odd notes to myself to make sure I remember things. And this one is like, hey look here, pay attention. We've just gone through a command. Praise God. We've gone through reasons and, and these are good, solid reasons. He is awesome. He is powerful. He's given us his word. He's done all of these things. You really ought to be paying attention and standing in awe and standing in fear. But it doesn't stop there. It doesn't end there. And this, I I think it's amazing that behold is right here in the middle of this to say, yes, all of that is true. You're commanded to, so do it. God is awesome, so do it. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness, to deliver their soul from death, to keep them alive in famine. The eye represents the attention or the focus of God. We're, we're shifting here just a little bit. We've looked at why do we praise? Because God is powerful, and there's none that can stand against Him. But shift your attention just a moment. His face, His attention—that God who is powerful and amazing and created all things and can wipe you out like nothing. His attention, His focus is on, on who? On those who fear Him, on those who hope for His loving kindness. I mentioned that that idea of loving kindness, once again, is a master, a lord, someone who's in charge, who has all the power, what he directs towards the servant. And so rather than that servant saying, well, I'm, I'm powerful, I can have armies, I can have, you know, great tanks and abilities, I can stand to get... No, who just says, you know what, I'm going to rely on the loving kindness of God. I can't do it myself, I don't have the power, I don't have the ability. God's focus, God's attention is on those who fear him and who hope for his loving kindness. To deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. What are those two things talking about? Well, death is pretty much an eternal state, right? You die and that's the end. The Bible says it's appointed unto men once to die and then the judgment. So if we fear God and we hope in him, we rely on him to deliver us ultimately in that in that. Spiritual realm. But it also refers to and to keep them alive in famine. So, in the physical realm as well, what it's doing is setting up this idea of whether it's physical or uh, spiritual, that we rely on Him. We turn to Him. We focus on Him because He pays attention to us. He focuses on us. He puts His eye on those who fear Him and those who hope in His loving kindness. So, then, why should we praise God? We've seen because of His Word because of his work, because of his will, because his love is without end. We've seen because he's powerful, because he's mighty, because he overrules nations, because he's the one who is large and in charge and controls all things. That's good reasons. We should praise him because it's commanded of us. That's a good enough reason in and of itself. But we should also praise him because he loves us. He pays attention to us. His focus is on us. And we can rely on him. We ought to. And we can. Which brings us down to verse 20. And this is kind of the confession phase. The last little bit, these three verses align the psalmist and really whoever was singing this. And it ought to be what we say as well. It ought to align us with that kind of person that was just talked about. The one who fears him. The one who hopes in him. The one who relies on him to deliver them. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart rejoices in him because we trust in his holy name. Let thy loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us according as we have hoped in thee. Not only is God's focus on the one who fears him and reverences him, but we, as we, we read this, as we sing this, we want to be that person and therefore we wait, we tarry for him. We don't go our own way, but we rely on him to set the path and to set the pace. Sometimes that can be difficult. Sometimes we know where he wants us to go, but we want to go in our own time. But our hope is in him because he is our help. He is our shield. He is the one who takes care of our spiritual side as well as our physical side. And we trust in him. And as a result of that, we ought to burst forth in praise, going all the way back to the very first verse. Why do we praise him? Why do we burst forth in exuberant praise? If we stop, if we pause, and we begin to understand who God is, who he really is, not, not this picture that we so often will have in our own minds, but we dig through something like this, where the psalm is trying to teach us who is God, He is powerful, He is sure, He is solid, He declares what will be and there is no overcoming that. He is the one in charge of the nations. He is the one who created all things. We look at, at normal things around us like water and He is the one who has ultimate power over all of that. When you begin to understand who God is, what choice do you have? What option do you have? Well, you have two. So what? That's what I like to end sermons with. You have two choices. You can look at that. You can shake your fist in his face and say, you know what? I don't care who you are or what you've done. I don't care that you're powerful. I don't care about any of this stuff. Shake your fist in his face and say, forget it. Not a very good idea. Or, you can be like what this psalm ends on. You bow the knee. You worship Him. You say, I rely on you. I wait for you. I need you. Because I can't do it myself. When we understand who God is, when we stop just for a moment and begin to get a picture of who God is, that's why we praise And the result ought to be bursting forth with worship for this awesome, amazing, powerful, loving, caring, protective God that we have just seen described in Psalm 33. As you go through the Psalms, I've I've been encouraging you to study them, uh, to read through them, make sure you get all the way through all of the Psalms during this. As you go through, you're going to find different things declared about who God is and as you learn more of who he is that is why we praise and it should cause you to just burst forth in praise of him let's pray Dear Heavenly father lord <laughs> you are awesome <laughs> we only get a small glimpse and and lord my feeble words are incapable of describing your glory the the pictures that that come to my mind and that I try to use are insignificant and incapable. Lord, as we look at your word and we see these ideas of, of how awesome and powerful you are, uh, even those struggle. As we've been studying Revelation, these, these pictures of, of men trying to describe your glory and your awesomeness, it can't. Lord, I pray that that would cause us even more because you are indescribable you're all-knowing and all-powerful there's no one that can stand in your way and yet you love us you point your face towards us ultimately you gave your only begotten son for us Lord, how can we do anything but praise you, but worship you? Father, help us to see who you are in your glory. And as a result, Lord, may we have no choice but to worship you. Lord, we know one day is coming when every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Help us to do it willingly.